I'm going to start with a quick confession. First of all, good to see you, everybody. Um, I feel like hopefully sooner rather than later, we can meet in person, continue to use in person when things get a little bit less crazy. Um, yeah, so I, it's the first time I recommend a book that I haven't read myself. <laughs> so I was a little bit nervous. Um, I, I heard from people reading it and um, I was sure that the topic would be a good discussion. I just didn't know whether the book would be a good book. Um, so I would love to hear um, everybody's first mm -hmm. opinion on the book. Um, I'll give mine at the end. And then we can go to specific topics, but just your general uh, perception of the book. I will, if anyone wants to share that, I uh, would love to hear it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Charna. Hey. <laughs> yeah, please. Well, um, it seemed more their experiences were as white people than Jewish. There wasn't much Jewish, mm -hmm. like anything other than I'm a Jewish person I'm a Jewish this or that but they there was nothing said about Shabbat or how you know what they did at, for any of the holidays while they were there I it think there was church. one mention of a synagogue that was in Jackson but right. that, yeah well they did um, discuss when she was talking about all the horrible impressions that people have of other ethnicities in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And she, she started spewing out all of the derogatory things said about Jewish people and, um, and got the awareness of the class mm -hmm. who said, well, you're none of those things, you know, just, I thought that was pretty significant. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, the life that they were in in Mound Bayou um, was, uh, um, what's the word? Conducive to being Jewish in a Jewish way. They just simply had to survive in the town they were in the best they could with what very little resources they had. So I don't think they ever forgot they were Jewish. Mm -hmm. But maybe it also helped them put perspective on what the the black population was going through, being persecuted. So I don't know. I like the book. Me too. Here. Any other general? Eve, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, to me, it was. Um, you know, I think it was more about um, people that were probably very secular Jews and tikkun olam. And this woman followed her husband into this community at what could have been the detriment of her children. And in fact, was very difficult for, I think, two of them. Um, you know, and here you are a white person, not to mention a Jewish person plunked down into Mississippi. So to me, that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of like the way it went back and forth between the child and the mother and then the child adult. Um, and I mentioned to Rabbi Ari, it also reminded me very much of the Jew store, which if any of you have read, it's, it's, it was about a store in, uh, it was South Georgia, okay. run by Jewish people that um, he was basically moved down here to 
to start a business. And again, it was very similar. You're, you're Jewish and you're plunked down in what is like the galut beyond the galut. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to me, it was very interesting. Um, I have to say, if I was married to that man, I would not be. (laughs) I I would have taken my my kids and split, but uh, yeah, I thought it was a very good book. Oh my I God. think that's one of the topics that we're going to get into. Yeah, we're going to get to the Jewish topic that's... too. That it... guy, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was very good and a very good choice and very different from anything we've read. Right, right. And memoirs, just by the nature of, of the, the idea, it's, it's a different type of book and experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. Any other comments about the book? Well, I... I um... Henna House was so good. I was thinking, oh, how can this book even compare? You know, I had resistance even starting to read it, but uh, I did. I, I enjoyed it very much, and uh, I agree with some of the comments that, uh, you know, that the wife just followed her husband down. He was going with her without her. You know, she kind of fell into the situation of teaching, and uh, I was very impressed by how strong she was and. Uh, you know, there was some Jewish stuff, like uh, Tarna said, not a lot, but like when she was uh, teaching about uh, Shakespeare, you know, Shylock, uh, I am a Jew, if you prick us, do we not bleed? I mean, there was some, there was some reference, but um, I do think it was more like she was a secular Jew and just wanted like Hanukkah to bring light into the world. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll just a, a little bit about my perspective on the book. I really enjoy it. Easy to read, um, compelling story. I felt that it was a little bit too short in terms of the two years impact. Like we saw some perspective, but I think that there was opportunity to go a little bit further. And um, the... I like that she based it on the diary, but I think I would have put a little bit more effort on the literature and way things were described. Like the, the adjective piece, like the way she described scenes seem a little bit too simple for a book. Um, so I think I would have brought that to a next level. That's like my critic, the two things I a little bit struggle with the book, still really enjoy it and open. I think the topic is just, such an interesting topic that I'm very happy that I had the opportunity to first read it and now discuss it with all of you guys. So um, it was it was good. Um, so I think the first topic and, and because he was a driver force on the book, it's it's the dad, Leon, or the, the, the father, the husband, the, the, this male figure. Um, there are a few scenes that I want to bring up and then we'll like so for us to discuss. So the first one, my I'll, like right away when I think about the husband, I think of is the this bathroom experience at the beginning of the book. They're driving from Memphis to Mississippi, and um, she really needs to be, and she jumps to this only wide bathroom, which um, was perceived as almost like an act of racism by someone that only needed to use the bathroom, you know, and, and the, the, the negative influence that I, I just felt so bad for her. I, I felt like, oh my God, this is, 
she has no relationship with this part of the world. She doesn't understand what segregation really is. And now she's being the, the perpetrator of something that she's so against it. And the husband is not supporting her at all. So that was one of the scenes that really like struck me as like, they are not a couple that like, he's not supporting her. And then uh, Rabbi Ari brought this up, but like when she was discussing at the beginning of the book, whether she was ready to leave. I mean, this wasn't a family decision at all. This was his decision. And she had the option to either follow him or probably get divorced. That was the second option. Like it didn't seem based on her own description of the situation that him staying was an alternative at all. So um, that kind of like dissonance that when you build a family, those type of decisions should be considered as a family instead of like as, as, as righteous as it is, what you want to do, like you, you belong to, to a bigger structure now. Um, those two things definitely strike me as like, maybe I would have not be with that guy either. So um, I don't know, what do you think about Leon and, and that like father figure for the kids or husband figure? Um, how do you see him in, in this story? And just one thing to add, at the end we know they do, do get divorced. We don't know when, but we, we do hear that he remarries and has got to have two more kids. So that's just probably one other point there so so you're asking how we felt about his role as the father in this life and and the husband i think like in in general is, yeah both i i know i think he cared about everyone but i think he cared more about his role in his career um i don't see him as having been a warm fuzzy kind of guy in the family i think the, the he basically figured the kids would get through it. They'd get along. They'd be fine. He didn't worry about them. I don't feel like he was in tune with the family dynamics. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was the mom. <laughs> right. Right. I also thought that there was a lot of fear that was that she had a lot of fear of him not being around or of him you know, if they ha if they were going to do the long distance relationship, that he would never come back home to the family, and that fear almost. And I, I was wondering if 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 he knew that she had that fear, right? And did he use that? And was that just his advantage? And she even writes in the beginning how she looked at herself as not worthy of him. He's this, you know, this cool guy or smooth, whatever the I forget the, the language, something like smooth or something. He's this smooth guy, smooth operator. And she, her self-perception, I'm not, I'm not, her self-perception was that she was, you know, whatever, not as fill in the blank, whatever. And I think she felt like indebted to him or something. And, and it seems like that power dynamic, he didn't mind using um, to his advantage when the opportunity arised. Anyway. I also think he saw uh, something in her that she didn't see in herself. You know, she was doing her needlepoint and being around home, and he encouraged her to teach. Right. I, I was just thinking of that, especially like he knew she would be a great teacher before she knew it. 
right. He arranged the whole thing with the principal, he did. didn't he? Yeah, that's that's um, also a great perspective to bring. He, I mean, this became her life passion. So, and it was all because of the husband pushing her, her, or even like fabricating the whole situation for her to be exposed to teaching. Um, it's hard to understand why he did it, but yeah. I felt like that whole adventure brought them uh, together, more together, to, as well as the, the family. Uh, they seem closer, you know, while, while, as a couple and also as a family while they, they live in Mumbai. Yeah, it's interesting. They She mentioned at some point they were walking, I think, to church on a Sunday, and they were like holding hands, which was something they haven't done for years so it was some sort of romanticism it's it's hard we we don't get the full perspective definitely but um i was it was hard for me to see whether maybe this was more of a norm in the 60s that the husband makes a decision and the wife just need to follow or or he was really being just imposed just totally obnoxious it's not considering her perspective on this because like with my eyes today I'm like this guy really doesn't care about her but then you see all these little things as like pushing her to teach and in somehow physical contact or or some warmth and and it was hard for me to either I never saw him as the bad guy but at some times definitely did And she also said at the beginning that, you know, at some point she said, I remain silent uh, to be a good wife, just as, as I've been, you know. So maybe that was also her perception of what being a good wife is. Yep, absolutely. I just couldn't, um, the, again, the while they were teaching their kids, I guess, an important life lesson. And, you know, Gandhi certainly uh, put the people of India in front of his children in terms of he spent more time worrying about them than his own kids and he had his own source with his kids. But um, it was just amazing to me that they, I don't think they really considered the children. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like for kids to come from school in the Northeast and go to school there. I mean, that, that was the part that I had a hard time getting beyond. Because even if she was following her husband, I would think she would have advocated for the children. Right. He right. did, I think he did. I mean, um, they, they pivot what they were there. They sent a kid away, they- Yeah, oh, that is true, yeah. But um, they didn't, Right, the the impact also being the only white kid in a old black town that has a social impact and it's going from from a school in which she was mentioning their kids lived for like extracurricular activities and they had all these amazing opportunities that were completely taken away for them. Yeah, um, that also seems it, it seems it. We were discussing with Rabbi Ari today. It's, it's like the, the, the people that actually go and change the world is the people that make personal sacrifices. There's no doubt about it. Um, you make sacrifice with personal relationships, family dynamics. But 
the way I see it, at least from my naive perspective, is that it's a family decision. It's it's if it's mm-hmm. a man, it's mm-hmm. going to be the wife behind him supporting him. If it's a woman, the opposite way. But like in this case, it seems like he wanted to go and change the world, and it wasn't like considering what the family would say or, or think. It was like yeah. this is my life, my mission, and you're welcome to join me. Well, yeah. if you think back to if you think back to the era of the '50s uh, family dynamic, the women were still the stay-at-home That's... mothers, housekeepers, uh, whatever, and they would have the dinner sitting on the table, waiting for the husband when he came home, and they didn't have a voice. They ended up. That is a good point. I thought that may be a fact. Yeah, and this was like right after. This was the early '60s. And um, in fact, I grew up during this period. I'm about the same age as the author, Joe. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and I was not raised to be college-minded even though I wanted to go to college, but my parents didn't put a priority on it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it was a whole different ball game. My father worked, my mother didn't. We didn't have a lot of money and that's just the way it was. Where did you grow up? In Connecticut. It's interesting because we were discussing that as a as a dynamic that whatever when when Ariella and I were discussing it, we were both commenting that that happened a little bit before our time. So it's kind of hard. I mean, you you know you can imagine it or you can hear about it, but that's one thing, and it's very different than actually living in that time and and being a product if you will of a generation and of a whole you know way of life it's an interesting but it's definitely an interesting dynamic but i I think i think though this the notion that people change the world but oftentimes maybe sacrifice their own family in the process i think that is something that that repeats in in history for better for worse it's just something to, to take note about Absolutely. You think I would think that the moment you decide to get married and build a family, you understand that you're giving up certain, whether they're passions or interests or for the, the better common good of your family. But then I guess it's that's just a one type of family dynamics. And then there's the people that they're driven by their 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 life mission, which is beyond what that um family or relationships in with their close people are but it was interesting i i i definitely didn't like him and i didn't know that in the times that i like him was because she from this position that uh rabbi are you were saying before of like i'm the weak side so she would be like he hold my hand he did this to me he so she felt encouraged for these small things that in reality they should be given in a healthy relationship so it, it felt almost like he was this power figure. He made the decisions and, um, and he was there for her in, in ways that very sporadically, in ways that it should be normal and expected, but uh, for her was unique and, and very important. So yeah, um, I, I, I don't know. I thought that was one of the most interesting characters in the book, definitely. Um, so anything, if nothing else about the father, I'm just going to. Oh, I had one thing. Oh, about, please, um, please. I've been busy <laughs> flipping through my book 
places that underlined. And right in the beginning on page 46, when it said when his parents threw um, a good a goodbye party for Leanne, uh, and, uh, and, and Leanne says uh, on driving back home, the doctor says, if I had realized how my patients felt, I might not have wanted to leave. In other words, he didn't know how much his patients and his fellow clinicians thought of him. So he just found out and I don't know, maybe he thought he wasn't leaving much behind. There was something better to go, go to. Right. That's such an interesting quote though, because I, I had forgotten about that one. But to me, that evokes the question and I'll ask it as a question. Maybe it's a loaded question, but it's a question. So was it really about changing the world or was it about being applauded because if he felt that in Boston maybe he wouldn't care about changing the world somewhere else maybe he was looking I, I don't know so much I'm sorry <laughs> maybe he thought he didn't have an impact he wanted to change the world and maybe he thought he hadn't done anything he didn't know he did anything till the goodbye party I think that he he saw the iniquities of life and he wanted to make a difference, but he also didn't recognize his relevance in what happened there. I don't think he was looking for the applaud. I don't think he was looking for that. I just feel like he felt validated when he left that he really did make a difference. Um, I don't know. I just, he was trying to be good to people. You know, he really did have his heart in the right place. Yeah, he, he was driven by a mission. I, I mean, there is a whole lot of discussion about, like, I mean, specifically about politicians and ego and narcissism. Those things come together many times. That doesn't take away with the impact they can have on the world, but there is definitely a part of their personalities that look for recognition and look for, for power and, um, it is a very unique position to be in a town where you know you're the only, everybody knows you and you're singled out and you're different from everybody. So that's something. And that takes, I think, really well to the next topic, which is the town people. And this is discussed through the book um, at, at a beginning. And I think through their stay, some people just didn't want them there. They didn't think, they needed white people to come and save them. They were, if Tafu University wants to give us money, give us the money and we're gonna hire our own black doctors because they they are black doctors and they, they're proud of them. And why do we need this white family to come here? And some other people were very grateful from even before they came. So what do you think is the driver behind these groups or like groups of, of town people that just didn't want this kind of charity on them you know what what do you think um about that i don't know if maybe this resonated with anyone beside me <laughs> it didn't seem to me that it was charity they just didn't want white people upsetting things you know white people you know might get bring you know the ku klux klan to focus on that town they just didn't want to make waves. They were uncomfortable, you know, 
being around white people, they thought they would get in trouble. Um, so they didn't really know what their uh, approach to them would be. They, you know, they had to work things out themselves. So you don't think it was, that's really interesting. It's, it was not about getting the help. It was more about now we need to learn to live with these people in our town. And, and there were many awkward situations through the book that like, they wouldn't like they, they would invite people to their house and these people would not look at them on the eyes. Like I, you can just imagine the situation. And then she learns about these rules that are either real or just social rules that like, you don't do that. Like you can, police can get upset with you. And like, uh, they weren't invited to that to, to black people's house because it wasn't that they didn't want them there. It was it's just how you they couldn't deal with it. So that's that's interesting. Um, you know, um, in the beginning of the book, um, chapter one, it says uh, there's this little um, picture, and at the bottom it says, out of the Jim Crow laws, um, for any public, they didn't want anyone, no public acceptance suggesting in favor of social equality between whites and Negroes. I mean, they didn't want whites and blacks having dinner together. The people in the town were just afraid of these laws. That's a great, I, I didn't see it like that, but that's definitely a great um, perspective. Yep, that makes sense. Well, I think, you know, as you said, that was the social construct at the time people were afraid, generations of fear. But also I think when people are so separate with myths behind the separatism, it's very easy to demonize it is not your group. And I think it takes a really long time for people to feel, feel comfortable with each other. I think there was a law against wanting people to feel comfortable. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there was a law against it. You know, there was a, you couldn't look people in the face, you know, whites and blacks. I mean, there were real penalties to that. I mean, there was well, lynching, there was, you yeah. know, fires, bombs. I mean, it was, there was a reality to this. I um I grew up in I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up in New York, and my mother married a man from uh, Columbia, South Carolina, when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And so I came down and lived with them for a while. And I was invited to a party, and I remember coming home and laughing. I was telling my mother, "Yeah, this party's going to be segregated, and everybody no is going to be integrated, and everybody thinks that's such a big deal." And she said, "You better not go to that party." I said, "What are you telling me? I'm going to that party. Of course, I'm going to that party." And I mean, somebody shot at that party. You know, there were some guys came and shot up the house. And I remember another time I was walking with a friend of mine again in high school in Columbia. And he was a black guy who was in my class and we were stopped by the police. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time having grown up in the Northeast where, of course, it was de facto segregation. But where I realized, man, this stuff is still, mm -hmm. you know, it's like the late 60s. Yeah. And I was um, having grown up in Connecticut in uh, the late 70s, I moved to Southwest Florida with my parents. And I got a job working in a radio shack in a town called East Fort Myers. And my boss was, I hate the expression, but he was a good old boy. And um, I was left in charge often. I was like the assistant manager. And 
I remember a couple of things that happened that I was just totally shocked like you, um, where people would tell me that if a mixed race couple were seen in that town, they would end up disappearing. Mm -hmm. Their bodies mm -hmm. would be found in the Everglades. Mm -hmm. um, when I had a customer come in and try to get a better price than the retail price on a product, um, and I kept saying, no, I can't do that. I can't give it to you for less. And he said, come on, lady, I'm just trying to Jew you down. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, oh, I had from someone the, say that to me. <laughs> I never heard that expression before. No, Here I am, I an innocent 19-year-old kid, and I was just flabbergasted. I didn't know how to respond. You know, I just like froze. <laughs> it was crazy. Was, but yeah, a travel group. Uh, and uh, I heard somebody say the same thing. Oh, they were just trying to do you down. I mean, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So many. And at the time, my brother was actually married to a black woman. And I was very nervous about them coming to visit. I said, right. Yeah. yeah. But that and I think, I mean, that probably was the, the source of it now that I think of, and that relates also to the books episode. It, it wasn't that they didn't want their kids being able to express themselves or, or, or go places the parents didn't have the opportunities to go. They just were afraid of the consequences, mm -hmm. which could be that they would be killed. They didn't know. I mean, they live with the Ku Klux Klan in their backs, basically. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a good perspective. I mean, Rabbi Ari, you, you brought uh, an example today when we were talking about this topic, just to bring some other perspective. Yeah, so I'll mention another perspective, but, I, but before I say that perspective, I just want to say, I want to express gratitude for everyone sharing their stories. I don't necessarily have those stories. I mean, I, I, well, I definitely don't have your stories, but I don't have even stories that match in my own experience necessarily um, exactly that which is being shared. And I'm just grateful and just hearing these stories. And it's just, it really opens up, you know, just, uh, just opens up more, more ideas and more, more realities. Yeah. I was mentioning, you know, I, I wrote last, what was it about a year and a half ago, I wrote a book on inclusion um, and the, one in, in my research on the book, and it's the focus on special needs inclusion. So one of the one of the sentiments that was shared is a sense from the special needs community that a sense, that some have a sense of resentment for feeling like they are being made into a mitzvah project. And, and I don't know if I'm articulating that correctly, but you know, yeah, saying yeah. something along the lines of my disability is not your mitzvah project. Just because you're, you have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah and you're looking for something to do that. So, and, and, and there's definitely more perspectives in that. And it's not, it's not a one perspective thing. And of course, anything that's done in a positive way with a good heart and good intention, and that's having a positive impact, we can never discount that, et cetera. But it, it did also, you know, kind of a parallel, and this is what I think Ariel was mentioning before, although there, we're now seeing some other perspectives and dynamics in it as well as the conversation unfolds. But, you know, the idea of maybe some in the community in Mississippi saying, you know, thank you for, thank you for um, coming down and, 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 and helping, but maybe allow us to help ourselves maybe in, in other ways that 
would be a little bit more attuned to wait to the way we would like to do it. And again, I, it, it's, it's very nuanced and I, I'm not painting it as, you know, like one way or another way, but just a perspective that came to mind is, you know, as I was thinking about this, this topic. Right. When I was reading it, that was what it came to mind. Now that you brought up the more social impact of this mixed relationships, I think that's probably a more relevant topic in this case, but um, it, it may be a combination of both. I mean, it, the reality is that even Black Pride wasn't a concept back then. She, that when she becomes a teacher, she starts teaching them to be proud of their heritage. And they, she's like, Black is beautiful. And they were like, no, it's not. So they couldn't even have pride on their own in, the, in their own culture because they, they were their own heritage. Yeah. Right. There was, there, there was, it's not what we think of today of like, there is this pride of community of belonging. Like they, they had the belonging, they had the community, but definitely they didn't have the pride. Well, they were treated inferior. And so after enough time, you become, you start to believe you're inferior. Well, we know when this country was founded, there were 700,000 Black people here, and they could only be enslaved. You know, you, uh, you, the Bible says you can't make another person a slave. So the only way that this country could reconcile having slaves was by uh, saying that Black people were like only three quarters of a person. Yeah, they were. Three quarters of a person, you can enslave them. Well, that's the way white people have been looking at Blacks for all these centuries. You can do whatever you want to them. They're three quarters of a person. And so they were afraid to be a whole person. You can get lynched. Right. It's, it's really hard for me to, to try to understand how recent this part of history is. I mean, and you talk about it as like part of your childhood, but like I'm this police people that Black people were so scared, they totally could still be police people in some cities, you know, like this, this is not anxious history. This is Let me bring and- really current to you. In the 1970s, uh, there was busing in the city of Atlanta and I rode the bus from Morningside Elementary to Parkaway School. Kids were being bused back and forth in Morningside. This is in the 70s. This is very, very recent. And many of the people in Morningside took their kids out of the public schools and Mm -hmm. they opened up a private school in one of the churches on Piedmont Road. Uh That I want you to know how recent this is. This is not back in the day. Right, which, I mean, it makes me think um, the, the racism that was portrayed in the book, it's not the racism we see today, but um, I'm sure certain elements do persist and certain elements ha- have evolved to not be the same, but still be some sort of, of type of racism. Um, I would love to hear from you. I mean, my background, I didn't grow up in the U.S., so... I've learned a lot of, of what the racial tension and why it's that. I've tried to educate myself, but it's always from a listener perspective as I didn't experience it. And where I come from, um, there is no black, we, we didn't have slaves. Chile didn't import any slave ever. So there is no black people like as 
from Africa, there is ethnicities from Chile within the, the same population. So people do look very diverse. So we grew up with some black people that arrived as immigrants and it was definitely that colorblind mentality because there's not a history of any resentment. So you were able to make jokes and it was like very casual and positive and, and there was no social tension about it because again, we didn't have any history of slavery. So coming to the US, I also went to school here. So it, it opened my eyes in many different ways, but again, it's not even the experience of my parents because we didn't grow up here. Um, so I would love to hear from you, how you think that has evolved from 1960s to today? Um, we're clearly not a segregated country in terms of laws, but um, there's still definitely social issues that um, need to be resolved. So how do you think that has evolved over time? I think people hide their, you know, look, you don't have law behind it anymore, but I think people have grown up certain ways and they hide their biases and it's hard to break through it. Um, I personally believe, my, my personal belief, just me, is that it'll become kind of resolved in a few generations as a result of um, a lot of intermarriage, a lot of uh, ethnic mixing. Mm -hmm. You know, even now you can see it, the categories of the senses have changed, has changed, have changed. But, um, you know, and even if there's not officially institutional racism, kids don't have an even playing field. Right. No, absolutely. You know, but by virtue of their birth and, and you know, generational cycles of poverty. Um, I did want to share something, though. I don't know that Jews are exactly or were exactly in the category of white either. Um, when we first moved down here, it was the very early 80s. And my husband took over a business that was largely a black business. There had been a white manager and the white manager was let go. And my husband was kind of the CEO. And so the black staff said, well, did he give you the key to the bathroom? And he said, no, what? what key to the bathroom? Well, apparently there was a white bathroom, but he wasn't given the key either because as a Jew, he wasn't allowed to use that bathroom. So of course his first act was to take the locks off the bathroom doors. But I mean, you know, we had experiences where um, we would meet people both black and white who, who, you know, wanted to know about the horns and things. Okay. Wow, amazing. And this is in you the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we hid the horns underneath. Right. Yeah, it's what to keep us right. for you cover right. them up. But, well, um, when I came down to um, Georgia in the late '60s and '68, it was during the Vietnam War. My husband was brought down to Augusta, Georgia, and there was a. You may have heard of this governor, um, Lester Maddox. <laughs> he owned a grill in uh, in Atlanta, and he was a very, very, he was the axe wielding, you know, he was so, uh, you know, uh, no say, no integration, huge segregation. So I'm just trying to bring you into the current. It isn't that long ago, this isn't Mount Bayou, but there was tremendous uh, racial antipathy when, uh, you know, when I uh, came to Atlanta and some of you may have heard about the temple bombing 
Oh, and for sure. Child is marching with MLK. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the school busing. Um, I think one of the greatest compliments my daughter thanked uh, her dad and myself for the busing so that she ended up staying in the public school. She went to Grady High School and she oh, wow. thanked us for bearing, staying with the public school system. She was like the only white girl on the Grady, you know, the Grady drill team. She was the only white, you know, candidate in the, uh, the homecoming queen. I mean, we lived through a lot of this, uh, uh, you know, integration uh, problems. And this was in Morningside. This Did was you have um, relationships? Were you able to have relationship with Black people from like a friendship or, or that wasn't part of the, of the time? I got my master's degree at Atlanta University. It was an all-Black school. Oh, wow. Graduate degree wow. there. Um, yeah. Okay, so I that, think that civil rights has been a, a big part of my life. I'm 78, so wow. I've lived through a lot of things that some of you haven't. But I've been, I was on a civil rights march in Sylvester, Georgia, where they put down beehives as we marched. You know, they ran a car through the march, so one of the men had a heart attack. I mean, it's not that. It's in the, you know, the late 60s and 70s. We're not talking about in the 1800s or something. Yeah, this was, and you know, I must say that once, you know, black people began to get on their own feet, you know, white people helped them become conscious and involved. But once they did, they did not want white people in the civil rights movement. Right. They wanted to be by the horns. They did not want white people in the NAACP, et cetera. And I think it was a good thing. I'm just saying that, you know, we had our place, Jews, white people, we had our place, but they they wanted their own, like like the rabbi said, we weren't going to be their, you know, mitzvah project. They got on their own. They wanted to do it. And I think you remember a MLK assassination? The, oh, the, God, the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Yes. Bobby Kennedy, um, Medgar Evers. Um, Malcolm X. Yeah. When, when I moved to Atlanta in 1980, I think it was, the, I as a Jew would not enter Forsyth County, period, full stop. I would not go near Forsyth County. They, when, I was, when I first moved here, there were KKK marches going on through Forsyth County. Yes. It was horrible. And I just refused to bring my dollars into that county. In fact, I was hired to do a photo shoot as an assistant um, with another guy in Forsyth County at a church with a giant family reunion. And I was a nervous wreck. Here I am, this little Jewish girl amidst all these people that if they knew I was Jewish and they couldn't tell by looking at me, who knows how they would have treated me. You know, it was just a really surreal feeling for me. Yeah, I remember being with my son once up in North Georgia and we went through a little town and a little little town and uh, we were at a stoplight and we rolled down the window. Somebody, young man handed us a piece of paper and it was inviting us to a cross burning. And it said, oh, no, it said no alcohol or weapons allowed. Mm. 
Yeah. And this is like in our modern lifetime. This is not ancient history. Not at all. And it's still out there. But now it's more it's more covert. It's not out in the open so much. But Forsyth County is loaded with Jewish people and black people and all kinds of different ethnicities now. And I can only imagine that there's people turning in their graves over it. You know, we we have friends who who have a a male relative who was lynched. Really? Yeah. 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 Really? Tell me. I mean, black. Um, Yeah. The the uncle was lynched. It was, I think, around LaGrange. You don't mean Leon Frank. No, a black friend, not a a Jewish friend. Wow. And it's still That's going terrible. on. That's terrible. So I, I grew up here. I'm a native Atlanta, and, and my parents lived on St. Charles Avenue when I was born, and they moved when I started first grade to DeKalb County. And there were no Blacks in the elementary school. Um, then when I went to high school, it felt like everyone was Jewish, though it was only like 20% Jewish. I don't... I don't think we had any, many blacks at all at Briarcliff High School. Um, But one thing I do remember growing up, my father was a manufacturer's representative. So he he worked for himself and he had delivery trucks and all the neighbors were complaining, but they were complaining because he was Jewish. Really? They're all, yeah, they were all complaining. Um, they, They would just, lodged complaints and they were pretty overt about the family about us being Jewish Hmm. and um, not liking us at all but I think it's because they didn't feel comfortable. Rabbi can I ask you a quick question what your experience um, being involved with the Chabad in town and being very public people as um, members of the Chabad community you you dress like a rabbi, you look like a rabbi, your kids look are part of the whole Jewish thing with the tzitzis coming out from under their clothing. And have you and anyone in your family or the Chabad community been affected by some of what we're talking about? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I have been, I guess you could call it fortunate in that I have not firsthand encountered really a lot of or or any targeted like hate or I mean a, a comment here there in passing you know we were sitting out there Kol Nidre Yom Kippur and somebody came by and I think just you know dropped a swear word or something you know biking by or something but that wasn't you know it was just more of like you know who knows what where when and um but but nothing I I, I haven't been no one's asked me about horns. No one's um, really, you know, laid into me for being Jewish. I haven't, I mean, thank God I haven't had that experience. I will say that there is Chabad today in Forsyth County. And I think yeah. last Sunday, I believe they had a, um, last Sunday Hanukkah. Yeah, I believe they had a groundbreaking on a new, uh, on, a, on a new, um, a new project that they're doing there. So it's things have come a long way, but yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, um, in Squirrel Hill in a very, very tight knit Jewish neighborhood. Um, a lot of Jews around and a, a really good integration with, 
you know, the, the local population that wasn't Jewish along with the Jewish population. Then I went to yeshiva in various places, never really had anything uh, happen. Brooklyn, you know, Brooklyn's Brooklyn and then Atlanta. So, so how do you, how do you feel about um, your children, the children at uh, the, the academy um, not being in an integrated school about being very sequestered away from the rest of society in their education? So it's a good question. So look, their teachers are not, um, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a blended curriculum. So there's Judaic studies, secular studies. Their teachers are coming from all ethnicities and backgrounds. So there is exposure. Our kids are not as sheltered perhaps as they might seem. They're, 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 they know what's going on out there. And yeah, I mean, they're definitely in a Jewish day school. They're definitely in a Jewish, a Jewish environment. But, but I, I don't know that there's necessarily a contradiction between um, having a strong Jewish identity and educa- education and identity and, um, you know, and, and being, a, being tolerant and more than tolerant, because tolerant sounds like you're going to tolerate the other person, even though, but it's more than tolerant. It's, it's truly embracing and loving and inclusive. And I think something that drives, if you're asking about Chabad specifically, so something that drives Chabad is a very, very strong um, energy of inclusiveness. I mentioned before um, the book that I wrote on, on inclusion, which was specifically focused on special needs inclusion, but it touches on the general Jewish and Chabad perspective on inclusion, which transcends any specific area of application. And the general, the general um, energy in Judaism and specifically, you know, within the Chabad community is inclusion is not something that it's trendy. So we're going to be inclusive or, you know, it's, it's really organic. It's really, and it's not, I'm not, it's, it's not, it's not exclusive a Chabad thing or whatever. It's, it's, it's really a Jewish thing. It's really a divine thing. It's a divine value that everyone is creating the image of God, no exceptions, no three quarters rule, right? We don't, we don't have, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I was aware of that exception or that, or that, that uh, mental gymnastics of like, yes, everybody, but here's how we can work around that. I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's Meshuggah. That's just crazy. So like Judaism certainly talks about from the inside out, this notion of everyone being in the image of God, everyone being in the image of God. But I don't think that's a, I don't think there's a contradiction between learning Torah and being proudly Jewish and embracing the Jewish value of being, you know, exceptionally inclusive. So I, I, I have a little bit of a different opinion if, if you want to hear, but I, my kids also go to a Jewish school and will probably graduate whatever high school from a Jewish school. It's probably one of the hardest piece for me from being sending my kids to Jewish school is the fact that they only are exposed to Jewish people. Um, I think learning the value, which is definitely taught, um, it's different than experiencing it. So you can you can teach them everybody's the same, non-Jew, non-Jewish people, black people, doesn't matter. Like people are people, you love them, you respect them, but like if they've never been exposed um, at a peer level, because yeah, they, they're exposed to teachers. Um, they can have black teachers, they can have white, they can have Jews, no Jews. But there's something about 
at a kid needing to have someone that is a peer to build comfort and relationships. So I, the, the way I think I compensate is um, I try to expose them outside of school. Like we do extracurricular activities in non-Jewish settings. My kids run there with the tzitzis playing soccer in like in, in the park with the black kids and non-Jewish kids. And if they want to have a play date, I will likely make it in my house because we have restrictions, but I will let them build those relationships. I, I think um, it's important. And, um, and, and also teaching them the values, I think it's also really important. But um, to me, it's definitely been one of the hardest thing of, because it's also the same I grew up. I grew up in, in the Jewish bubble and then I went out of college and then you, it, it's, it sounds easier than it really is. Like you, I, my parents always taught me that we need to respect and love everybody, but like you've never interact with everybody. So what it really means if you're not there. So we're trying, we're trying to expose them um, as much as we can. I mean, time is limited, resources are limited, but I think um, it's an important value for kids to, to learn, to just build relationship and be comfortable with anyone. And it, to me, has definitely been one of the hard things of sending my kids to Jewish schools is I want them to be Jewish and proud and learn the material and the curriculum but at the same time I want them to be comfortable with everybody and, and learn from everybody so and, and another thing that has helped me I think is that we are diverse and to really embrace that diversity within Judaism I I'm considerably white I mean I my, my family's from Turkey like I I like you know I'm very different than my husband his family's from Russia like we are very diverse within our own Jew Judaism, you know, like we practice similarly, we practice the same, but, but we come from different places. So I try to embrace that and show them that um, we, we really are not, I, I don't like to even call Jewish people white necessarily. Like as, as much as it's important to know that we do have many of the privilege of white people do have, but like we are unique in our own perspective, so. Just a different perspective with, with respect, Rabbi Solis. <laughs> oh, 100%. No, it's, 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 it's good to hear the different perspectives on it, 100%. Yeah, but, um, but I think, I mean, if you touch on a point about where racism is today, and, and I think this is what I at least see, is the, is the fact that opportunities from very early on are setting different paths from different communities. For sure. Um, and... And I mean, I don't think we're ever going to come up to like any type of resolution, um, mm -hmm. but it, it, that is really what it's when, when that gap is, is really cross is when we're going to say, yeah, it's not only about integration, it's also about like opportunities. Uh, otherwise, I don't think we can solve this, this very damaged social construct mm -hmm. in this country. And you know, the, the sad thing, I think it starts prior to conception, really. Right. And especially the situation now, you know, the, the, the gap between kids who have resources and kids who have parents that are able to work at home and educate them during this very bizarre time that we live in. Oh. And the kids that don't have that, the gap's just going to continue to widen. It's, it's really sad. Great I mean, point has done 
and you have country like I come from Chile, oh, the third world country. The govern like there are things like you wouldn't imagine. Like online school didn't start till every single kid had a computer and Wi-Fi in their houses. Wow. No one had an online school. I mean, definitely people with resources were teaching their kids because they were accessing all these apps, whatever. There's definitely gaps, but like you see these pictures of like kids and uh, Taco Bell trying to get like the Wi-Fi because they needed to do their online school. And you're like, this is America. Like, what, what's wrong? You know, it, it's, it's mind blowing. Um, but that's, that's, that's where I think the work needs to be for, for that. Um, I mean, I do think we've come a long way. I mean, I've never been to Mississippi, but I do live in a very integrated Atlanta with, I went to school at Emory with many black friends and, and, and it was definitely different story than the one narrated on the book. But um, from my perspective, again, I, I didn't leave that time. So it's, it's hard to, to see it. Like uh, some of you were saying, maybe the people have the same feelings. It's just that they don't express it. Um, but, but there's a long way to go. And, and we definitely have a role. I mean, as small as it can be, like we may not pick up ourselves and move to like, change of only black school or whatever it is, but even within our communities, we, we can definitely help. That's that's a goal, I guess, after reading this book, it's like how we can do a little bit, if not a lot. I will say something. I, I listened to a podcast a few months ago called Nice White Parents. And the premise <laughs> is, the premise is it's about the New York uh, New York City public school system and how the system is geared bending around backwards for nice white parents. And the notion of integration oftentimes is driven by white parents who want their kids to have the diversity of mm -hmm. integration, whereas the black parents, what they want is not diversity. They just want the resources the white schools are getting and it's it's a completely different and, and it this was the most eye-opening piece for me it's you have the white parents that are speaking about integration or diversity as it ends unto itself and the black parents are saying that's nice that you want that as a another extracurricular thing for your kids <laughs> we want is the resources we want nice buildings we want foreign languages we want the teachers the high caliber teachers that you're getting. it's it was an interesting that is it was a it's a it's an it's an incredible podcast it when it when it came out it was you know i mean anything that comes out is you know people will you know whatever it's controversial on some level it's from the same some from the same producers as, as this american life if you're familiar with that yes. great program from uh chicago Anyway, Ira Glass, a nice Jewish boy. But anyway, the point is that it was really eye-opening. That that was one of the core ideas that really came out. But anyway, just thought I mentioned it. It kind of uh, come back to uh, they don't want it to be a mid-stop project. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, and those are the, the conversations you... I definitely think, I mean, I work, my workplace is, is diverse in terms of they hire people from different backgrounds. But another way to see 
like racism today is like when I see up the, the pyramid of power in the in the organization, you you see less and less minority. And minorities being women, it's it's the same. We people don't see representation. So that um, we have a long way to go. And yeah, that's but that's very interesting. Is I I think everybody benefits from from diverse opinions and diverse cultures but then also we need to do it with an eye on who are we trying to help are we trying to help ourselves are we helping them are we helping society in general it's it's a it's an important perspective thank you for bringing it up yeah definitely well and then the challenge is when we do reach true diversity how do we maintain our own identities within that right right that, and that is that balance. Like it's a challenge. As, as a family, we we said we decided Jewish schools because we want that identity. But then, is is that 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 it's? I, I don't know if if anyone find the right recipe. Let me know <laughs> because it's it's um that I think that's the biggest challenge. We we want to be unique and and proud of who we are with with without taking away from the diverse. Yeah, absolutely. I once heard that one of the meanings of being a light unto the nations is not, it's not about teaching everyone Judaism. And it's not just even teaching everybody about what it means to be a mensch. It's really about modeling what it is to be proud of who you are. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like, we're proud of who we are. And, and, and we wish, it sounds too condescending, but I, I think it would be beautiful if, if, if in our world, and we mentioned this before, if everyone was proud of who they were and, and embrace embrace themselves, and I think that would be a beautiful thing. Yep, absolutely, beautiful message. And I think with that, um, I don't know if is there any closing comments on the book on the topic. I really want to thank everybody because um, hearing your perspective really gave a lot of context and value to the book. So thank you very much. And I don't know any closing comments. The floor is yours, guys. This, is a, this might be trivial, but we never heard what happened to the three fellows that went to Brandeis. I mentioned. I, I thought maybe that. that would be on the last page. Just <laughs> something. I was I was looking at the book website. Joe Ivester has oh. her own website, and she has oh. contact information. Oh. And she's happy to to do meetings with the groups and book clubs and have you what have you. Oh, nice. So. You know, if you go on to the, uh, let's see, I have it right here. It's uh, Joe Ivester, all one word, joy, or joeivester.com. And it comes up and it gives you all kinds of fun information and photographs and book club questions. And it's just, uh, it was a very um, well done website. So you can get in touch with her. It's joe at joeivester.com. I, I think that's a really important question. I was very curious. Uh-huh. I told the first thing I told Rabbi Aritz is like, what happened to these three boys? It's, <laughs> it's almost like an experiment and I hate to see it that way, but like they went from like this old black community to like this super Jewish Boston life, which- that, That'd be a great follow-up book. I think, <laughs> right. Like their their perspective. And I, and I also think, I mean, something we didn't even touch on, but like, we, we, it's very easy to talk about racism in the South, but at the time and even today, 
places like Boston have a lot of race issues as well. So I don't think they had an easy day up in in Boston. So um, I think I'm going to follow up with that question. If I get any update, I'm going to let you know. Uh, But definitely the finish the book. And that was the first thing I asked, what happened to the kids? (laughs) Yeah, we we didn't go over the assault. um, And then her meeting with the assaulter, I guess, but they, Later in life. it was obvious they had different perspectives and she just wanted, she left it. Right. She didn't want to argue I, with him. They were from the beginning of the story, very forgiven or condescend. Like they were always like her attitude towards him at the end of like, she almost ended up asking for forgiveness. I felt it. No. I'm like, no. she, she was too, too soft with him. I don't know. These are people that pretty much try to rape her. And I, my perspective of her encounter at the end is like, I'm so sorry you had a hard time after I left. I'm like, really? Like, he should have had a hard time. He, like, he, I don't know. That well, was a little I think bit she, hard for me. Yeah. And I think she saw he wasn't in the best place, you know, alcohol in his breath. So, right. She probably figured he didn't advance much right? from where he didn't go very far. But I think that the title of that chapter was really good. The, the one that, oh. Joe, the one that paid the price, you know, of, of this adventure. Because, I mean, that it's a terrifying experience. It's terrible. Well, even before that, the way, you know, when she was, every time she'd go in a pool or whatever, these boys would try and, uh, it was, it was on to me, actually. She was a little kid at the time. Right, right. Oh, I know. It was. Yeah, that was definitely. By the way, just a, a quick aside, another book that she wrote is Once a Girl, Always a Boy, a family memoir of her um daughter who became a transgender man oh yes yeah so really wow yeah interesting oh got high acclaim the book okay cool i got that out we do have announcements for next month book right rabbi yes yeah we have an announcement and and thanks to, to adrian and her husband ben for recommending this we're going with the recommendation. So what I'd like uh, to announce is the book is called We Were the Lucky Ones. Huh. I'm going to read the description here on Amazon. Inspired by the incredible true story of one Jewish family separated at the start of World War II, determined to survive and to, and to reunite. We Were the Lucky Ones is a tribute to the triumph of hope and love against all odds. New York Times bestseller. It is about, um, it's, it's, it's around the Holocaust, but it is really an uplifting story. I am going to, has anybody read it? No, Ben has, I have not. Okay, he, I mean, Ben was raving about it. So um, I'm gonna drop the link on Amazon in the chat. I just dropped it there. We were the lucky ones on paperback. It's uh, under 10 bucks and it can be by your house in less than two days. So. And you can rent it. It's available in the local libraries as well. And local and when libraries. Is, if you, when is the next library. meeting? 
the next meeting, okay, I have dates. Um, Perfect. I'm open, so go for it. Give me one second. Let's see what I have here. I have January 17th as a, as a possible date. Does that sound okay? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> My kids are actually starting winter break, so if anyone wants to take them. <laughs> um, yeah, that sounds great. Okay, January. Yeah, so save save the date, January seventeenth. I'll send out an email reminder as well. Um, but it, it's it's a it's apparently I didn't I haven't read it yet, but apparently it's a very special book. So I'm very excited about that. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Ariella, you Thank said you. you said you heard feedback, good feedback on the book as well, right? Right. I posted. I, I'm part of like a book club group. I posted there. Um, got really good feedback. Again, it's not very in depth of the Holocaust. I actually haven't read or watched a movie with like a lot of Holocaust topic for a long time, just my personal trauma, I guess. But um, I think this book is, is uplifting and a lot of to discuss. And um, I think a little bit of what we're gonna be able to touch on is what, how perspective in life and how your goals that you put can affect your destiny at some point. Mm -hmm. I think it can be an, a very interesting topic and sensitive topic. I'm looking forward. Good. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you, you Ariella. Thank you. Have a great everybody. night, everybody. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Everyone take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you Bye. all.